Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha. And I'm Paddy. In today's story, we will be discussing Marco Polo, the first, but sadly not the last, lost Doctor Who story. Now, before I jump into the recap, I would like to point out that the version we are reviewing is not the version that comes on the Edge of Destruction DVD, but Trisha will explain more of that in the trivia section. So, let's get to it, to the story summary. Episode 1, The Roof of the World. Our four travellers are investigating a giant footprint that they've discovered in the snow, with Ian hypothesising that it could be a normal footprint made to appear larger because of the melted snow at the edges. Ian and Barbara wonder what part of the earth they could be in, but are again wary of the Doctor's ability to get them back home. The Doctor comes out of the TARDIS, angrily stating that the power seems to have gone out of the ship, leaving them without heat or water. Ian and Barbara go in search of fuel for a fire, while the Doctor and Susan remain to try and fix the ship. Barbara sees a fur-clad figure watching them from a distance. Ian is sceptical of her claims until he sees more of the footprints from earlier. They go back to the TARDIS and the Doctor tells them that he has located the component that needs to be repaired, but it will take a few days to manufacture it. He suggests that they go to a lower altitude when Susan spots the figure again in the distance. They go after it, as the Doctor says it is their best chance of finding shelter. They continue to give chase until they encounter a group of Mongols. Their leader, Tagana, says that they are evil spirits and should be killed. Ian protests that they are humans, but it is to no avail. They are saved by a European man travelling with the Mongols, who invokes the name of Kublai Khan to back up his authority. This displeases Tagana, but he lets the travellers go. The man notices that the doctor appears to be suffering from altitude sickness, and he takes them back to his tent. They enter the tent and find a young girl named Ping Cho tending to food. Barbara, as a history teacher, deduces that their rescuer is the legendary Marco Polo. He says he is en route to meet Kublai Khan and will take them with him. Susan rooms with Ping Cho, who tells her that she is on her way to meet a much older husband as part of a, an arranged marriage. Later that night, Marco and Tagana are discussing the strangers, with Tagana saying that they should have killed them as they are evil spirits. He uses the TARDIS as proof of their otherworldliness. Marco is unsure how to proceed and goes to investigate it for himself. He asks several questions about it to Susan, Ian and Barbara, and when he tries to go inside, they tell him that only the Doctor has the key, and only he can fly it. Back in the tent, the Doctor and Ping Cho are discussing the company she is in, and she tells him that Tagana is actually a peace envoy from the clan of one of Kublai Khan's rivals. Marco comes back and says he will arrange for the TARDIS to be brought down from the mountain so they can bring it on their journey to the city of Lop. However, he says that the Doctor and the others are forbidden from entering it, as the Mongols are still, are still suspicious of them. The Doctor agrees to this in order to keep the peace, and so they make their way to Lop. They arrive in the city, and Marco arranges for food and provisions for the next stage of their journey across the Gobi Desert. The Doctor attempts to start repairs on the TARDIS, but the Mongols block his way. Marco says that he intends to give it to Kublai Khan as a gift in exchange for his freedom to return to his home in Venice. He says that he will take the others with him to Venice so they can build another TARDIS. As Marco and the others argue over his course of action, Tagana is observing them suspiciously and seems intrigued when Margot says that owning the TARDIS could make Kublai Khan the most powerful man in the world. Later that night, Tagana receives vials of poison from another Mongol. He intends to poison the water supply for the party and take the TARDIS in order for his master, Nogai, to gain supremacy over Kublai Khan. Episode 2. The Singing Sands the party make their way across the Gobi Desert, and the Doctor has not been pulling his punches when it comes to letting Marco know his feelings under the current situation. He refuses to eat as a form of protest, much to Susan's distress. Barbara tries to reassure her that this is just a phase the Doctor is going through, and he'll be back to his normal self soon. Susan goes to bed, and Ian plays Marco in a game of chess as Barbara and Tagana watch. Later that night, Susan wakes Ping Cho to look at a meteor shower, and they see Tagana sneak out of the camp. They think this behaviour is odd, and they decide to follow him. 
Elsewhere in the camp, the horses start wickering and Marco and Ian wake up to investigate. Marco tells Ian that a sandstorm is approaching. Susan and Ping Cho lose track of Tagana and then get caught in the sandstorm. Back in the camp, the others notice Tagana missing. Barbara goes to check on the girls as the sandstorm is quite frightening, but she discovers that they too are missing. She tries to rush out into the storm to find them, but Ian and Marco stop her for her own safety, and Barbara blames Marco for all of this. The two girls are sheltering from the sandstorm and they think they hear Ian calling for them. They call back and suddenly Tagana appears. He brings them back to the tent where they are reprimanded. He explains his own absence as having gone out for a walk to enjoy the peaceful night prior to the sandstorm. The following night, Susan and Ping Cho discuss Tagana's suspect behaviour and ask why he would lie about going for a walk. Marco is in the main tent writing in his journal while Tagana watches him as he sharpens his sword. Tagana tests his reflexes by drawing his sword on Marco, but Marco is quick to defend himself. Tagana says that he will go attend to the horses and Marco asks him to send in the guard. Tagana sabotages the remaining water gourds as his earlier plants for poisoning were scuppered by the sandstorm. In the morning, the sabotage is discovered, and Marco theorizes that bandits are the most likely responsible. He says that it is the trick that they used against caravans in an effort to turn them back and weaken themselves by rationing the remaining water. Their options are to return to Lop, or to attempt to reach an oasis that is still on their way to their destination. Marco makes the decision to go to the oasis, much to Tagana's frustration, as it again interferes with his plans. Progress to the oasis gets slower and slower as the remaining water diminishes. Tagana offers to ride ahead and bring back water from the oasis. Marco agrees, but this says that they will still move forward to reduce the time spent waiting for him to return. The doctor collapses due to exhaustion, and the others beg Marco to let him rest in the TARDIS. He agrees, but he says only Susan can stay with him. Tagana reaches the oasis and drinks greedily from it, taunting the others and urging them to come for the water. Episode 3, The Cave of 500 Eyes As the caravan makes its way towards the oasis, the travellers wonder what happened to Tagana as they are reaching the limit of their water supplies. Inside the TARDIS, the doctor is awoken by water dripping onto his face. He wakes Susan and together they see that the source of the water is actually condensation running off the walls of the ship. They gather as much as they can and rush outside to tell the others. Marco accuses the doctor of withholding water, but Ian intervenes to explain what condensation is. They reach the oasis, and Tagana emerges from hiding, saying that he was avoiding bandits in the area. Barbara seems sceptical of his story, and urges Marco to spend some time at the oasis to allow the doctor to recuperate. He agrees to stay for one night, and Barbara tells the others of her suspicions of Tagana. Marco and the doctor get into another argument over the key to the TARDIS, with Marco demanding it be given to him. The caravan arrives in the temple city of Tun Huang, and the doctor says he will, need, he will work on repairing the TARDIS, revealing to his companions that he actually gave Marco a dummy key. Everyone gathers in one of the temple courtyards as Ping Chos performs the tale of Allah Aideen and his Hashashin warriors. Tagana leaves as the performance ends and Barbara follows after him. He makes his way to the Cave of 500 Eyes, so-called because of the murals depicting 250 Hashashin warriors. He meets someone named Malik, who takes him into a secret chamber to meet another named Akumat. Inside, he is told that Nagai is marching his army towards the capital to overthrow Kublai Khan. He enlists their services to attack the caravan and steal the TARDIS for Nogai. Malik alerts him to Barbara's presence at the entrance to the cave. Barbara is exploring the cave when she is suddenly grabbed by someone and is then held prisoner as the Mongol guards decide her fate over a game of dice. Back in the city, Marco is furious and organises the search party to be led for him, by himself, Tagana and Ian. The doctor sneaks out, intending to find Barbara himself. Susan and Ping Cho follow after him, telling him that Barbara may have gone into the cave, as they noticed her early interest when Marco mentioned it in passing. They get directions from one of the locals, who begs them not to go during the night for their own safety. He also tells Tagana, who rushes angrily after them. They arrive at the cave and search for any sign of Barbara. They find her scarf and begin to shout out her name. In the secret room, one of Barbara's captors holds a knife to her throat. 
The others continue to shout her name, and suddenly Susan screams in terror, saying that she saw the eyes of one of the murals move. Episode 4, The Wall of Lies. The same man who told the doctor in Tagana about the cave informs Marco and Ian of what has occurred. Marco is annoyed that the others have warned it off, but Ian says that they need to go after the others first, and anger can come later. They make their way to the cave. The doctor is trying to reassure Susan that what she saw was probably a trick of the light. Tagana enters the cave, and the doctor shows him Barbara's scarf. Ian and Marco enter soon after, and the doctor shows him the scarf also. Tagana tries to force him out of the cave by saying it is haunted by the evil spirits of the Hashashin, but they still look for Barbara. Tagana leaves the cave, and Ian goes to inspect the mural that Susan talked about. He points out that the eyes are not actually part of the mural, and that there must be a secret room behind it. He activates the switch to open the secret chamber, and they enter in time to see a Mongol guard preparing to kill Barbara. Marco kills him first, and Ian goes to comfort the visibly distraught Barbara. Back at the caravan, Marco and Tagana discuss the travellers. Tagana tries to convince him that they are up to no good. He says Susan is attempting to ensnare Ping Cho, and that the Doctor must have a second key to the TARDIS, as it is the only thing that explains his going into the ship in the dead of night. The others enter the room, and Marco asks Barbara why she went to the cave after he had forbid it. She tells him that she followed Tagana there, but he denies it, saying that the first time he ever went to the cave was to help her look for her. Tagana leaves, but not before telling Marco to think of what they have discussed. Marco orders Ping Cho to sleep in separate quarters from now on, and Tagana smiles as he spies on them. The caravan continues its journey, skirting the Great Wall as it does so. The doctor announces that his repairs should only take another night, and then they can leave. He does voice his concerns about Ping Cho, as she has seen him use the second key to the TARDIS, and could reveal it to Marco. His worries are proved true, as Tagana overhears Susan and Ping Cho discussing their impending separation due to the travellers leaving soon. They arrive at their next stop in the city of Shinju, and Ping Cho has a realisation that Tagana lied about never having been to the cave before. However, her evidence is too flimsy for Marco, and he chastises her. Meanwhile, Tagana is meeting with his contact, Akomat, from the cave, and instructs him to attack the caravan in two nights' time and slaughter everyone. The doctor goes into the TARDIS to continue his repairs, just as Tagana enters the courtyard. Barbara observes this and goes to tell Ian, who tells him to get the doctor, as he has a plan that will hopefully catch out Tagana. He goes off in search of Marco, and they discuss the current situation between them and Tagana. Tagana appears and informs the furious Marco that the Doctor is still inside the TARDIS. Ian says that they should go and double-check to see if Tagana is stirring up trouble. The Doctor emerges from the ship, and Tagana takes the key from him. The Doctor informs Marco of the booby-trap door, and that he will never give him the secret to enter it. Guards emerge, carrying Barbara and Susan, and Marco orders them all to be taken away after the Doctor taunts him. During the night, the prisoners formulate a plan to escape, and steal back the keys to the TARDIS. Ian cuts a hole in the tent that they are being held captive in and slowly sneaks up under guard. As he grabs him, he discovers that the man is already dead. Episode 5 The Rider from Shang Tu Ian alerts the others of the impending attack and the doctor urges for haste to leave. They spot Tagana, not realising he is preparing to signal the bandits to attack, and Ian goes to find Marco. He wakes him up and informs him of their impending attack. Marco goes outside and signals to a startled Tagana, who abandons his preparations as Marco orders him to rouse the camp and then arms Ian and the Doctor. The Doctor offers to use the TARDIS to escape. Knowing that the bandits will not attack without a signal, Tagana uses this to cast further suspicion on the travellers. The Doctor says that the available weapons are not enough to defend the caravan, and Ian suggests using bamboo shoots in the fire to create a series of flashbangs. As they prepare for the attack, Ian confesses their plans for escape to Marco, who once again says he cannot let them part with the TARDIS. Tagana once again implores Marco to believe him, but suddenly the bandits enter the clearing and a fight commences. Akomat approaches Tagana, who kills him in order to protect his secret intentions. The bamboo shoots start to explode and the bandits flee in terror. 
Despite their assistance, Marco refuses to allow the travellers access to the TARDIS. However, he does allow them their freedom back, and Pingcho can return to being Susan's companion again. Tagana storms off in frustration, and the Doctor voices his theory that Tagana was in on the attack. Barbara says she remembers Akomat from the cave, and that Tagana must have killed him to avoid being outed. They realise that Tagana must be after the TARDIS for his own reasons. A rider from Kublai Khan arrives at the camp, and Ping Cho goes to inform Marco. She enters his tent as he is hiding the TARDIS keys in his journal, and he swears her to secrecy. The messenger, who is an imperial captain named Ling Tao, bears a message for Marco, stating that the Khan requires his presence urgently. He says that they will have to travel via horseback, and the caravan will follow on after them. They make haste to the capital, arriving at the way station city of Chiang Ting. There, arrangements are made for the TARDIS to be brought to the capital via the next trade caravan. Tagana meets another of his associates, Kuju, and hires him to steal the TARDIS from the trade caravan. Later that evening, Ping Cho goes to summon Marco for dinner, and while he goes to clean up, she steals one of the TARDIS keys. She brings it to Susan, and both of them are sad at their impending departure from each other's lives. That night, the travellers escape to the TARDIS after Ian knocks out the guard patrolling it. Susan goes back to say goodbye to Ping Cho. The others notice her missing and realise what she has done. As Susan is about to enter the TARDIS, she is suddenly grabbed by Tagana. Episode 6. The Mighty Kubla Khan Ian goes out and begs Tagana to let them go, but he refuses. Marco and Ping Cho arrive, and Marco orders Tagana to release Susan. He asks the travellers how they managed to get into the TARDIS, and Ian lies to cover for Ping Cho, saying he searched Marco's room. He tells everyone to go back to the rooms and prepare for tomorrow's journey. At the next way station, Ian once again tries to get Marco to let them leave. He confesses the truth about the TARDIS to Marco, and says that they needed to return to the future. Marco says that although he has seen many amazing things since he's arrived in the East, he cannot believe that the TARDIS is a time machine. He calls him out on his past deceits, and catches him out in his lie about taking the key. Ping Cho overhears this, and fearing her for her own safety, flees during the night. Marco says that they need to find Ping Cho, as he is sworn to bring her to the capital. Susan says that she is most likely trying to make her way back to her homeland, over a thousand miles away, country of Samarkand. Tagana offers to retrieve her, thereby giving him an excuse to join Kuju in his steps to the TARDIS. Marco says that Tagana needs to fulfil his duties as a peace envoy between Nogai and Kublai Khan, and so Ian offers to go after Ping Cho. Marco is initially sceptical about Ian's motives, but allows him to go when he realises he just wants to save Ping Cho. Ping Cho arrives back, at the, arrives back in Chien Ting and sees Kuju, who says he has come to collect the TARDIS for the trade caravan. She asks him to join the caravan so she can return to her homeland, and he accepts her offering of payment. Later on, the way station attendant reveals to her that Kuju has actually stolen her money. He suddenly recognises her and tries to apprehend her so he can return her to Marco. Just then, Ian arrives and says that despite his personal feelings about her arranged marriage, he must still take her back. Just then, the leader of the train caravan arrives to take possession of the TARDIS, which confuses the attendant. Ian overhears this and deduces that the caravan has actually been stolen. Together, he and Ping Cho figure out that the TARDIS is most likely on the old Karakoram road that leads to the lands owned by Tagana's Lord Nogai. Back at the other way station, Tagana and Marco are arguing over Marco's refusal to let Tagana leave the caravan aid of the search of Ping Cho, saying that he needs to be present at the capital again due to his role as a peace envoy. Tagana again tries to poison Marco against the travellers, highlighting their opposition to Ping Cho's arranged marriage, and Ian's quickness in offering to retrieve her is most likely an excuse to steal the TARDIS. Susan and Barbara enter laughing, and Tagana uses this as another example of their deceitful nature. Marco gives in to his frustration and paranoia, and sends Tagana to track Ian down. The main caravan arrives at the capital of Shang Tu, and the travellers are given instructions as to how to act in the Khan's presence, but the doctor refuses to kowtow to him. The Khan enters, and we see that he is a feeble old man beset by back pains. The doctor is forced to his knees, and the Khan mistakes his own aches and pains to be mockery. Marco explains that the doctor is in pain due to the non-stop riding it took to arrive. 
He expresses confusion and concern when he finds out that Nogai's army is approaching the city. The Khan says that they will retreat to gather their forces at the Imperial Palace at Peking and is amused by the Doctor's own maladies, so he offers to, for him to ride in the royal coach. Barbara asks Marco to see if they can delay for Ian and Ping Cho, but he says that they must wait for Tagana to retrieve them. Ian and Ping Cho find Kuju and ambush him at his own camp. He confesses to being hired by Tagana. Just then, Tagana enters the clearing and, realising that he has been outed, challenges Ian to a fight. Episode 7 Assassin at Peking Tagana pledges his allegiance to Nogai, and as they are about to fight, Imperial soldiers led by Ling Tao enter the clearing and apprehend everyone. Kuju is killed as he tries to escape. The prisoners start to accuse each other of their various plots, but Ling Tao says that he cannot make a decision on their fate, and orders them to be taken to Peking for Kublai Khan's judgement. In Peking, the Doctor and the Khan are playing a game of backgammon, and seem to have become fast friends. The Doctor has won a substantial amount of money, livestock and property from him. The Doctor wages it all on one last game to gain back the TARDIS. Marco arrives to inform them of the Tagana's arrival and expresses dismay at the thought of the Doctor winning their wager. Marco is discussing this turn of events with Barbara and Susan when the Doctor emerges and says that he has lost. Ling Tao also appears and says that Ian and Ping Cho are being held in custody because of Tagana's accusations against them. They all go and visit Ian and Ping Cho who recounts everything that has happened. Marco says that Ian will be the only one to stand for questioning as Ping Cho has been excused as per her husband-to-be's request. In the Great Hall, Tagana tries to turn Kublai Khan against Marco by saying that he has refused to execute the prisoners as per imperial law for their attempts to steal back the TARDIS. He also outs Marco's desire to trade the TARDIS for his own freedom to return home. The Khan is angry with him and says that the point is moot as he has now won the TARDIS from the Doctor. He also requests Tagana come to his chambers after that evening feast to discuss a peaceful solution to no guy's warmongering, but advises him to keep his silver tongue in check. Later on, the Khan informs Marco and Ping Cho that her husband-to-be has passed away after consuming an elixir of life in preparation for the wedding. She is given the option of staying in Peking, which she readily accepts. She is dismissed after answering questions about her connections to the travellers. The Khan announces to Marco that he must regain the Khan's trust or else he will be banished from the court. In their quarters, the travellers discuss their current situation, and the doctor states his belief that Tagana has actually come to Peking to assassinate Kublai Khan in an effort to create a power vacuum to allow Nogai to take over. They overpower their guard and make their way towards the throne room. En route, they run into Marco, who orders the approaching Ling Tao to return them to their quarters. However, Ling Tao reveals that Nogai's forces are actually on the march to Peking. The travellers tell them of their suspicions about Tagana's purpose, and they rush to the throne room. In the throne room, Tagana has put his plan into action and attacks the Khan. He kills the royal vizier and is about to finish off the Khan when Marco appears and challenges Tagana. They fight, and Marco disarms Tagana. He is brought before the Khan, who orders his execution, but he takes his own life by impaling himself on a nearby sword. Using the confusion, Marco gives the doctor the TARDIS key and urges him and his companions to leave quickly. They utter their goodbyes to each other in Ping Cho and take off in the TARDIS. Marco apologises to Kublai Khan, but the Khan informs him that the doctor would most likely have won it back in another game of backgammon. He also grants Marco leave to return to Venice. Marco wonders aloud where and when the travellers are as we see them travel through space. End of episode 7 and end of the story. I just need to say one thing. Yeah. And it's not directly related to anything you've been saying. Yeah. But it's just been going through my head while you've been talking. Yep. Khan! <laughs> oh, God. So now that it's the story reviewed, we're now going to go over to Trisha for some trivia. Great. Thanks, buddy. So let's start with the obvious. Paddy already mentioned at the top of the episode, Marco Polo is one of the lost Doctor Who stories. Which begs the question, how can a story 
be lost. Well, to put it bluntly, by the BBC deleting them. In the late 60s and 70s, the BBC would wipe or destroy tapes, believing that retaining them served no purpose. This seems ridiculous in this day and age, but keep in mind that this was before home video was even invented. The BBC genuinely did not see any need in keeping the content that they'd already aired. This means that sadly, many early episodes of Doctor Who simply no longer exist. Some missing episodes have, though, cropped up over the years, which is why we often hear about certain stories being released in part or in full. In total, 97 episodes across 26 stories are missing from the first and second Doctor. Sadly, more from the second than the first, which seems slightly counterintuitive since his stories were newer. Marco Polo is one of 10 stories that are missing all of the episodes. Strangely, though, it was sold to more countries than any other serial in the 1960s. And the fact that no copies exist of it now, that means way more versions of this story were destroyed than any other story. All we have now are telesnaps or production photographs. So how do we watch a review for this? Well, a BBC amateur video production company named Loose Cannon Productions took the available telesnaps for the story along with composite pictures, available audio recordings, which weren't destroyed, and specially created material to put together a reconstruction of the story. So it was going to be voice, audio track, with still images and some descriptions on them. They even created a new introductory sequence with Mark Eden reprising his role as the title character of Marco Polo. This is just amazing. The amount of effort that they went through to do this. It's an unofficial version, which is true. And as such, it's not available commercially, but you can still watch it on the Loose Cannon Daily Motion account, if you're that way inclined. And I would just like to take this opportunity to thank everyone that had worked with Loose Cannon to be able to do this for Doctor Who fans throughout the world. So guys, if you're ever listening, thank you very much. Yeah, and you know, if you're someone who's maybe not quite sure about the quality, some of the people working for Loose Cannon are now working with the BBC on the reconstructions that have come out recently. This team is absolutely amazing. Paddy mentioned at the beginning that there is a DVD version of this. The DVD release of The Edge of Destruction does include a BBC version, 30 minute reconstruction of the episode, that, of the story rather, that was made using telesnaps. We decided against using that version because it's only 30 minutes for a story that should be close to three hours. So we decided to go with the loose canon version. So into the details of Marco Polo itself. Marco Polo was written by, I'm going to butcher his name, I'm so sorry, by John Lucarotti? Lucarotti. I think, that's a, I think Lucarotti is probably a fair way to pronounce it. But again, apologies if we get it wrong. Yeah, it's probably meant to be like some Italian accenting and I'm really bad. Anyway, John drew heavily from Polo's memoirs, published in the 14th century as the description of the world. The route followed by Marco in the serial was inspired by his first journey to Peking. His escort of Ping Shou was actually based on a real event in which Marco brought Princess Kokashin to Persia to wed the grandnephew of Kublai Khan, only to learn upon their arrival that the older man had passed away. Tagana, Akomat, and Nogai were all named for Tartar rulers mentioned in Polo's memoirs. John wrote again for Doctor Who, 
with the Aztecs and the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve, often referred to simply as the massacre. He also wrote the original script for the fourth Doctor story, The Ark in Space, but the story was extensively rewritten by Robert Holmes and John did not receive on-screen credit. John explored his three on-screen stories again when he wrote the Target novelizations for each of them. Again, we have a story with two directors. I think this may be something that they were doing in the early years to give the BBC directorial crew experience. But again, we have two directors. Waris Hussein, who we have discussed before, uh, directed episodes one to three and five to seven. Many of the telesnaps I mentioned before were actually from Waris's private collection. He bought telesnaps of every story he directed so that he could keep them in his own personal collection. And I think that given some of the amazing work he did on An Unearthly Child, I feel really bad and sorry for him because this story, I think, to have it be alive visually would have been amazing. Yeah, definitely. This was his last story in Doctor Who as well. Which means that there's even more of a legacy that we could have had for him. Yeah. Though he did go on to direct many films and TV shows in the US, the UK and India. So he wasn't forgotten by the world at large. No. Episode 4 was directed by John Crockett. After Marco Polo, John would return to direct the Aztecs, which we will talk about in a few weeks. He apparently loved the historical episode so much that he submitted story ideas to Doctor Who story editor David Whitaker. These included stories about Richard I and the Crusades, Viking raids on Britain, Cornish smugglers, and Bonnie Prince Charlie. We may come back to some of those themes later. Yes. In future episodes. This story aired from the 22nd of February to the 4th of April 1964. It is the first of many stories that include real people from history. It is also one of the only stories to have a narrator and a map tracking the characters as they go. Again, another first is the first story to have live animals in the form of the horses. The working title for this story was A Journey to Cathay, Cathay being an alternative historical European name for China, which Barbara actually explains in the episode. Caroline Ford has said that this is her favourite story. And again, the fact that this is so many people's favourites, but it's not available complete, is very disheartening. William Russell did make a complaint about this episode. In fact, he made two. The first was regarding six minutes of new scenes being added the day before filming. Russell basically said that this was not appropriate, and it resulted in the cast being given greater script approval moving forward. The second was that Marco Polo was one of the first or possibly the first story where Doctor Who was on the cover of, um, I think it was a magazine. I think it might have been the Radio Times. I think it was Radio Times. Yeah. So, you know, it was the first Radio Times cover for Doctor Who. And it was the Doctor and Marco Polo on the cover, not the main cast. Yeah. Which pissed William Russell off understandably in my opinion it was originally intended for the story to be narrated by the doctor ian and barbara but it was felt that it would be presented better as the memoir of marco polo which it was based on 
Many people believe that William Hartnell went on holiday during the filming of The Singing Sands. This isn't true, he just happened to have one line of dialogue in that particular episode. On to our guest stars. First off, we have Mark Eden as Marco Polo. Mark was actually hurt during camera rehearsal um, when his right hand was accidentally lacerated by a dagger, which couldn't have been nice. Um, I already mentioned that Mark worked with Loose Cannon on the reconstruction for this story to record some extra information at the beginning in terms of a description, but also an extra opening shot as Marco. Though he does not appear in Doctor Who itself again, he is in An Adventure in Space and Time. The sort of documentary type story. Yeah. Where he portrays the BBC One controller Donald Baverstock. Which at the time of recording is actually his last on-screen role. A lot of people from the 80s though may know him as Alan Bradley in Coronation Street. And just as you were saying there about an adventure in space and time, uh, Caroline Ford and William Russell are actually in that as well as uh, just bit parts. Tagana is is played by Darren Nesbitt. This is his only on-screen Doctor Who story, though he has worked with Big Finish in the past. This is actually not his first time working with William Russell either, as he was in The Adventures of Sir Lancelot as Sir Tristan, as well as some other characters. And on a personal note as well, that another reason why I uh, am upset that this story is missing is that I love uh, Darren Nesbitt uh, as an actor. He's in one of my my and my brother's favorite movies, where Eagles Dare, where he plays a, a Gestapo officer, and he's fantastic in it. So I would highly recommend that anyone that when they listen to this, if they like the portrayal of Tagana, check out anything you can find with Darren Nesbitt in it because he's an amazing actor. He is very good. It's such a it's such a crime that we don't get to see this character in its full glory because he sounds amazing. Oh, absolutely. His voice is just, again, even when he's playing a good guy, his voice and as well as some of his facial uh, expressions, he comes across as so sinister. It's like when Christopher Lee tries to play the good guy, you're like, I don't trust you. <laughs> Lastly, we have... Ping Cho, who is portrayed by, and again, I'm going to ruin a name. I'm so sorry. Zena Merton. I think I've ruined her first name. My apologies. She's best known to science fiction fans for her role as Sandra Beans in the mid-1970s series Space 1999. She reprised the role for the 1999 short film Message from Moonbase Alpha. Though she didn't appear in Doctor Who again, Keen-eyed Sarah Jane Adventures fans will recognise her. She played the registrar from the story The Wedding of Sarah Jane Smith. Oh. Which I didn't recognise her until I looked it up, and now I can't not recognise her. In 2018, Martin recorded the narration for the novelisation of Marco Polo for BBC Audio, but sadly she died three months before it was released. That's a shame. Like it, it's kind of, It is a pity when that kind of stuff happens. Actually, I have a question, just in case you might have come across it. So this is one that's kind of heavily set in the Orient. And because we only have telesnaps, unlike, say, uh, a much later story, The Talons of Wang Chiang, which also has Asian characters in it, I've never heard any complaints about any sort of portrayal of Yellowface or any uh, caricatures of of Asian characters, sorry, or of Asian people in this story. So... It was actually the opposite. They actually were given a lot of credit for having quite a diverse um, story Mm. and a diverse cast. How diverse that actually got, I 
with the telesnap it's hard to be sure yeah but there was definitely nothing negative said about the casting of the episode that i came across and anything i did see around that sort of touchy subject mm-hmm. was positive for the episode oh good that's nice to hear So each week on Time Travelling Team, we discuss the companions, the Doctor and the villains. So let's start our discussion with the Doctor. Paddy, what are your thoughts on the Doctor in the story? Oddly enough, for me, and it might just be down to, I think it was episode three, where he only had the one line of dialogue. At times he felt like a kind of a background character. I'd say that's mostly down to the fact that he was, you know, working on the manufacturing the Paris component. But I felt like the others were the real kind of focal points of this. He does have some really good moments in it, though. Like when he says that the weapons uh, aren't enough to defend the, the camp. So we can't get very far with this bread knife when he's handed a, a sword. I thought it was kind of funny. I also like his interactions with the can. Now, I do have some thoughts about... Uh, but I did like the fact that he was able to kind of like have games you know it was just basically two old men um, uh, lamenting their uh, sorry their current conditions and then just becoming friends over it also like you just the way he's um, the way he kind of acts around Marco that you get this impression that he seems to have a greater appreciation for great deeds if there's a greater age number attached to the person performing the deeds and i think that as well kind of goes or lends itself towards some of my favorite scenes which is indignant indignant doc bill as i like to call it because it's just funny seeing him get all flustered and how dare you sir (laughs) yeah Uh, one of the, the first note i put down and i'm aware that it's explained in the episode as he's affected by the altitude but it just sounds like at the beginning that he really doesn't like being cold yeah that seems to be the thing that's bothering him the most is you know screw this it's cold i want to go back inside yeah one of the things that we do see carry over as the bit that i'm actually coming to really love about doc bill yeah is this sneaky you know mischievous gleam in the eye streak that he has yeah Um, we've seen it in pretty much every other story um, but in this one, it really comes into play when he gives Marco a fake key. Yeah. And you kind of get the impression that, you know, yeah, he's an older gentleman or whatever. But he's just like this little imp who's just like, oh, you thought I gave you the real key. Hmm? Well, then what's this? He, he's, um, like, he's like a very tall Yoda. Yeah, actually, that's a really good. That is exactly what it's like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've lost the ability to describe that sentence but yes that is a very good comparison same walking stick same hairline the whole lot some of his favorite scenes for me were his scenes with the Khan. the gambling of backgammon was just very funny um but more so when the Khan first enters and he's just the doctor's just so indignant he's like i can't kneel down are you kidding me (laughs) like have you seen me i'm old my knees don't work my back hurts (laughs) it's just he's just such a crotchety old man but in a kind of lovable way my back hurts my legs hurt i have two owies (laughs) yeah (laughs) i love as well that the relationship he develops with the khan is quite good because although the khan is sort of treated 
in a bit of a humorous fashion, which I don't know if that was the concern that you had about it. Yeah. When he's playing backgammon with the doctor, and when he's even talking to the doctor, you can see the great man that Kublai Khan was. When he's in public, he's maybe a bit more of a caricature. But I actually felt that in those moments where, yeah, it's just, you know, two old guys playing a game of backgammon or whatever, you see the real Kublai Khan in those moments rather than in the rest of the episode. Yeah. So I thought that was a bit of a redeeming quality through his friendship with the Doctor on that character. Yeah. And I suppose like we'll probably get into a bit more about that when we do the overall story summary as well. Yeah. Um, beyond that, I didn't really have much to say about the Doctor. I, I agree with you that he was very much a, I wouldn't even say a secondary character in the story. He was a tertiary character at most, really. Yeah. But I think that worked well. You know, he's not always going to be the one who knows the most. His skills are not always going to be the ones that get them out of the situation. And at this point in the Doctor Who show timeline... He's just an old man. Yeah. And he has the limitations of an old man. The people who did get a bit more focus, and it it differs per person, um, are the companions. I think they were certainly a lot more active in this story compared to the Doctor. So why don't we start with Susan. Um, My opinion of Susan's episode is quite short in terms of my notes, but I think you'll get what I mean, where... This was probably Susan's most consistent, emotional-wise, story. And it is literally her being a teenager and having a teenage friend and hanging out and having fun. Yeah. Like, I've said that it's uh, Little Susan on Holiday. Because that's that's what it comes across, like, that it's, it's, it, it is a holiday adventure for her. Because, like, despite the fact that, yeah, they have the normal dangers and trials and tribulations that most Doctor Who stories have, because she's got Ping Cho there with her, it just feels like that it is a holiday that she has someone that she can be relate to on a more level footing, you know? Yeah, and it's it's nice to see her, and again we've discussed in previous episodes, you know Susan is meant to be relatable by the children in the audience, so you know, girls hanging out in their bedroom discussing boys and all this kind of stuff. She's just being a normal teenager. Yeah. Um, One thing that I did like, though, is while she clearly questions Ping Cho's um, marriage plans, shall we say, she doesn't hold it against her. No. And she doesn't say anything to upset Ping Cho. She asks questions, but then she just accepts it as this is normal for this part of the world in this time frame. And she doesn't do anything to say like, oh my God, I can't believe you're doing that. There's no there's no modern teenager in that. It's just supporting your friend. Yeah. And like, even though like she, like she says, like, well, she doesn't vocalize it to her, but you can tell like that she doesn't like the idea of an arranged marriage of being so young. And, but again, as you say, like she kind of keeps it to herself because she just wants to keep Ping Cho happy. Yeah, which I thought was nice. Yeah. I'd agree. Next, we move on to Ian. Uh, Ian Chesterton, action man. <laughs> um, Ian was kind of the functional leader of the group in this story, in my opinion. He could, has most of the dealings with Marco Polo. And again, we get to see him kind of take on his action man role. 
<laughs> Which is where he's at his strongest. You know, that's that's what he does. Um, what did you think of Ian? Um, Ian is like so. Ian is not your prototypical muscle uh, at at this point. I think because what I thought was well, like first and foremost, I would love to know what sort of an upbringing or education he had in the ability, the fact that he's able to ride a horse by himself with ease. He's also able to fight with a sword quite handily from all accounts. We don't get to see it, but we get the impression from like Marco and those in attendance that he uh, can fight handily. So I'd love to know like, like where he went because you don't get the impression that he had like a proper like or a, a boarding school education where like fencing or horsemanship or anything like that sort of things were, were taught. I don't know, maybe he did. I mean, I never got any suggestion that he didn't have a public school um, like a British public school upbringing. Um, I, I think it might be the way he carries himself because, like, a much later companion which we see that had that sort of upbringing is Harry Sullivan. And Harry Sullivan is a very old girl, you know, that type of thing. Whereas Ian doesn't seem to have that attitude. Uh, but uh, but Harry's Harry. like Harry is Harry. But you know what I actually thought it might be? Now, granted, like, the, the, the horse riding wouldn't come into it. But Ian probably would have been of an age when a time maybe National Service was there. So maybe he would have had the two years of conscription. Maybe. That would be a good explanation for it. Yeah. After you got me to watch uh, Bad Lads Army. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so that that kind of came into my head. But the one thing I loved as well was that even though like, it did kind of establish him as the muscle of the group, it didn't take away from his scientific background when he realized that the what the um, result of bamboo at a high temperature would yield, like the the explosions. Yeah, and even the way he had to explain condensation to Marco Polo, which is quite a simplistic um, scientific concept, but he did get to bring that out um, into the fore. And like that's one thing as well that I suppose kind of ties in with the uh, the fact that it is a children's show, is that it's even in the future episodes and the past episodes, it's still very educational. There's always this sort of little kind of, you know, now kids, this is the what <laughs> this means moment, you know? Yeah. So I really liked Ian in this story. Someone who had, at one point in the story, quite a traumatic experience is Barbara. Yes. That experience for her, like when we catch up with her and she completely understandably loses it. That is, it's weird, it's not my favourite Barbara scene, but it's definitely up there. Yeah. Just this raw fear of, and like Jacqueline Hill sells it so well that she had to sit there and watch as they rolled dice to decide who would kill her. And it sort of brings to mind if this show hadn't been directed at children. Yeah. How far those threats would have gone or would they have brought more things into those threats than just we're rolling for who's going to kill you? Yeah. Other stuff could be touched upon, and I think in a later episode, those kind of concepts are touched upon, which I think proved controversial at the time, but that's for a later discussion. I think, though, in Jacqueline Hill's presentation, I always got the sense that they did say those other things as well. Yeah, and actually, I was thinking about it, and so, again, we discussed last week that one of the most famous images during uh, the early uh, time of Doctor Who was... Barbara recoiling in fear at the approaching Dalek and yeah. you had the gun pointing at, at her and I think for me 
having her having that sequence where like the knife is being held to her throat is actually a lot of a, it's a lot scarier for Barbara with that because the knife is much more up close and personal and it's more tangible whereas like the gun is in front you know you could potentially dodge whatever's going to come out of it but that's why I think she's so much more visibly or not that's why she's so much more distraught over this scenario than with the Daleks because this is an awful lot closer the other thing as well is that a the Dalek gun looks like a whisk so she didn't really she probably inferred what it was going to do but she didn't really know for sure um, but also, and this is the other thing where this story is great for Barbara in terms of a character perspective, is she's a history teacher. Oh, yeah. She is in her historical element here. She knows what, you know, people of this time period were like. And maybe she knows it from a skewed sort of future perspective, but that has to be going through her mind. Yeah, when you hear the Mongols, you don't exactly think of hugs and cuddles. No. So that must have been going through her mind. One note I have here, though, is that I kind of had to like face palm at the beginning of this episode or the beginning of this story. Barbara's a history teacher, right? We just said how she also has eyeballs, right? And she's a fairly intelligent woman. You know, we've established how is it that she mistook the Mongols for beings that weren't human well okay i'll say something in defense of that okay is that okay first of all they're in a snowy mountain region they have no idea what snowy mountain region they're in and for most people and i would assume like you know as well with most people that are in uh into history mongols you just you assume uh wide open plains uh not really mountainous regions so and you don't. Uh, you obviously they're wearing furs and stuff like that, but they wouldn't be wearing enough furs to kind of make them look like huge walking yetis. So I can kind of forgive her reaction that you know they're not human uh, a small bit. I can get her not recognizing that they were Mongols. That you know, but not human. I don't know. It just seemed it portrayed her as a little bit stupid, and I, I don't like that um, because on the other side of that coin. Barbara's ability to read people and her intelligence is in full force mm. in her reading and her assessment of Tagana. She you know, she really picks up quite quickly that there is something not right here. And maybe it's the historical aspect, you know. Wait, this enemy warlord is coming to talk peace? Maybe we should be a bit sceptical of him? Bullshit! 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 <laughs> Yeah, so that was probably the reason why it struck me most interesting that opening bit because we do see her intelligence really come to the fore again later on. Um, and that's more sort of her emotional intelligence and her ability to read other people. The other aspect of companions when we do these reviews is we look at kind of, I suppose, what we call like the episodical or the story companions. So the characters in the story who join up with our group of heroes. So one of them, and we've discussed her a little bit already, is Ping Cho. Yeah. All I, the first thing I've done for Ping Cho is, nice girl, a bit naive, but has a good heart. Yeah. I think she is, because you, you can tell that she's very she's very duty-bound. Like, you get the implication that this uh, arranged marriage is actually for the benefit of her homeland, more so than her or her family as such. Yeah, definitely. But she doesn't complain about it or rally against it she's not happy about it and you get that sense from her but she will do her duty 
Yeah. And it doesn't make her bitter or angry. Um, she still maintains her good heart. The fact that she kept trying to help the group, um, even taking the key from Marco to help them. You know, she didn't give them away. She clearly felt for them. And I imagine for her, it was sort of like, well, I can't help myself out of my situation. I'm stuck here in my lot. But they don't have to be. Yeah. And another thing that I was just thinking of is that after her, her husband-to-be took the elixir of life, which I'm assuming was some sort of blue powder. I was thinking, I have that in my notes as well. I'm like, <laughs> elixir of life to prepare for his wedding equals Viagra. <laughs> yeah, so, so, something along those lines. The fact that like the Khan offers for her to stay in Peking and you have no idea is like, stay until we find a more suitable husband, stay and potentially be a hostage to the better to the survival of your kingdom or your your country and she again because you said she is a good heart and kind of duty bound she stays there knowing that it's for the benefit of her people not knowing what the future may hold which i think is a great strength of character for her definitely and i think even with her running away i don't think she ran away for her own sake i think she ran away because if Marco discovered that she'd stolen the key and told the Khan, her people may have suffered. Now, running away doesn't solve that. I think her people would have still suffered for her. Yeah. But as a 16-year-old girl, she was like, I, they can't find out that I helped Susan and her friends. I'll just run away. Yeah. Instead. Like she may be a princess, but she is still a small girl as, as well, if you think about it. Or a young girl. Sorry, I won't say a small girl, but she's still a young girl. And you have a fight or flight response and the, the flight just kicked in. Yeah. Cool. So, Marco? Yeah. So, this is interesting. And we kind of discussed this a little bit yesterday. I don't have Marco down as a companion. I have Marco down as a villain. So, this is interesting because I put him into the kind of companion side of things. So, will we keep going with the companion discussion and then we can lead into your villain discussion of Marco? Or how would you like to... Yeah, why, why don't you give your companion view of Marco first and then I'll give my villain view of Marco. Uh, I heard in your voice, your companion, you said your companion voice, but I heard in your voice, your wrong view of Marco. So... <laughs> no, no. Hey, this is time traveling team. No one's opinion is wrong. I'm only messing. I'm only messing. Except yours. Yeah. See, there it is. There it is. So, I put him down as a companion because all of his actions towards the group are, to me, they're understandable. Does that make him less of a dick? No, absolutely not. But I can still kind of see where he's coming from in the sense of... It came up in the, the last, the, I think the last episode of his threat of banishment. Now, he wants to go home. But if he's banished, he doesn't get the protection that the, being an envoy of the Khan would offer him. So he can't avail of like you know going into caravans, or he can't avail of military escorts, or any of that sort of thing. So he wants to go home, and he he said it you know at the start a few times, but I think as the show goes on, it becomes less and less sincere. He really wished that he wasn't doing this to the companions for his own well-being, but he just wants to go home the same way that they do. I all. But on the flip side of that is, as Tagana pointed out, he's repeatedly broken imperial decree by not executing the prisoners. Like, he keeps them alive because he does fully intend to bring them to Venice so that they may or try and get back to wherever it is that they came from. 
So that's a small bit of a redeeming thing from my mind. And I also kind of get this impression as well that at the end, when he's having his sword fight for with Tagana, I think it's just it's very therapeutic for him in the sense he's lashing he out all his frustrations about the entire scenario. And I think it finally kind of gives him a clear head that once Tagana is gone, he should have done the right thing the whole time and let them take the TARDIS and go home. And he has no knowledge as like whether the can will like kind of reward like what way the can will reward him for saving his life. Like it could be, you know, oh you get a palace uh in Peking or whatever the case may be. So I think at the end he does kind of redeem himself, which is why I've kept him as a companion. Okay, interesting. Interesting view of him. Yeah. I'll give you mine and we can discuss um the different points of view. So when I first started watching this, I was like, okay, the story's called Marco Polo. Here is Marco Polo. The story is told from his perspective, which kind of lends itself that he's meant to be a protagonist. Mm-hmm. And then I realized very quickly on that he is the most self-centered individual ever. Mm. And he hides it behind a courteous nature. Oh, but I'll take care of you. I'll help you go to your home. It's fine. But I need to take your shit. With a T. Yeah. And give it to somebody else. And you're my prisoner. And you can't leave. And you can't have access to your ship. Because I want to give it to someone else for my benefit. He is so self-centered and arrogant and up his own arse. That I couldn't, like... My first note on him... And if you go into our notes, you'll see this is, I don't like him. Am I meant to like him? Because I don't see how anyone is meant to like this person. I don't, I'm not sure if it's a whole thing if you're meant to like him, but I think you're meant to kind of, like, un- understand him. Like, uh, like I'm not say, I'm not going to say, like, you sympathize with him, or maybe you can sympathize with him. It's kind of like, like I'll, I'll put this here, right? A very recent kind of uh, thing we discussed, you know, was uh, Thanos in the Avengers movies. And yeah. it was like, okay... I understand his motivations. They're wrong, but I still understand his motivations. Yes, but Thanos is the villain. Yes, I know. But exactly. Which kind of makes this a small bit weirder because it's like, I understand your motivations. You are being a bit of a dick. And like, I suppose at this stage of his life, Marco's been in China and he's been away from home for quite a bit of time. And you get the impression like that he's wanted to go home, but the can refuses to let him go. So that's no excuse. <laughs> I, I'm I'm not trying to make. I'm just trying to make a statement or a rationalization. If that is that is that the same as an excuse? Yes, it is. <laughs> well, okay, fine. The reason I put him as a companion is because I didn't think there was enough to put him in there for me as an out and out villain. Is he a flawed companion? Absolutely. So the way I looked at it, right, is we look at the honored pilot. I class the doctor as the villain. He was doing things for a kind of understandable reason. Protecting Susan. Protecting the ship. Yeah. But he was a horrible person. Incredibly, again, selfish and self-centered. We put Za as a villain in the aired story An Unearthly Child. Even though towards the end of the story... He was nice to them. He appreciated what they did for him. They gave him fire. They helped make him better. He still kept them captive and we still saw him as a villain. Yeah. Marco is no different than Za. Except at the beginning of the episode, he's a little bit nicer. But 
had Za met the group at the beginning of his story, he may have been quite nice to them as well. But he still would have put them in a cave of skulls and he still would have treated them badly because he wanted stuff for himself. And Marco just wants what's good from Marco. And the worst thing about it is I would maybe give him a pass if he listened to people, but he doesn't. They explain time and time again, we can't just take a ship and sail home. And yeah, maybe they didn't explain the time travel bit till later, but he doesn't listen to them. It's like, you know, he has this vision of things and therefore it must be true. And I think he's used to getting his way for way too long. He takes his role as leader of the caravan very seriously, but too seriously to the point where he comes across as a bit of an ass. He's incredibly rude, constantly yelling at people who, you know, I didn't give you permission to this and I didn't give you permission to that. Yeah, again, I get that he's the leader of the caravan and he's responsible for their safety, but he doesn't do it in a nice way. Also, he's an idiot. He keeps being fooled by Tagana. I mean, I mentioned it earlier when talking about Barbara, but like, Tagana is going to the Khan to talk peace. That does not make him peaceful, Marco. It really doesn't. And what bothers me about Marco is that he flips on a dial against the group you know that courteous nature that he had we see that it was fake the minute he's given any semblance that his behavior towards them is justified he jumps on it and i just i i can't see him as anything other than maybe not an evil villain but certainly a villain and certainly the opposition to the group you made the point a while ago about thanos and I saw an interesting, I think it was the Cinema Wins guy on YouTube. I think he made the point that Avengers Infinity War, spoilers if anyone hasn't seen one of the biggest movies ever, the protagonist in Avengers Infinity War was Thanos. Yeah. It was Thanos' story from Thanos' point of view and at the end, Thanos wins. Yeah. But Thanos is still the villain. Yeah. I see this as the same thing. It's Marco's story from Marco's point of view. And at the end, Marco wins, but that does not make him a good person. True. I Again, I would say like his saving grace is the fact that he let, he's the one that lets them go. Like It's not Ping Cho. Like, taking, he just decides, look, guys, go leave. Uh, we may have to create it because I think neither of us are going to change our opinions on things. We might have to create a new classification of tweener for uh, <laughs> for people. No, but this this is why we do this. Like this this discussion is why we do this podcast in the first place. So speaking of villains, and you were on about how he was continually hoodwinked by Tagana. How about we discuss Tagana now? Yeah. So Tagana, I would one hundred percent agree was the villain. Um, <laughs> I, again, stepping back for a small second, I saw him as the secondary villain, but that was just me. Oh, he's a devious bastard. Oh, he, he's, he's amazing. It's like, again, it, like, because it's purely audio that we base this on, all you have to go off is like the, Darren Nesbitt's vocal acting 
which in itself is enough to get across the fact that he's a shifty, shifty fucker. And you've you've got the and like when you take a look at his uh, picture of him in in anything, and as I said earlier on, if you haven't seen Where Eagles Dare, watch it. It's a fantastic uh, movie, and he's a great character in it. But you get to see him acting, and you get to see just how suspicious looking he is. I, I, not to <laughs> say anything bad about his face, but he's a great actor, and he gets Tagana across like a fantastic. Like Tagana is like he's got, as I said, he's got more lives than a room full of cats, <laughs> and, he, and he's just like amazing master manipulator. Yeah, his it's his ability to manipulate people that is so good. He he's always watching, he's always paying attention. And he's taking note of the small things that he can then use to preempt any sort of criticism of him later. Do you know? So he watches how the TARDIS crew behaves and then goes to Marco before Marco next sees them. Yeah. And says, hey, so I noticed that they're laughing all the time. They don't take this seriously. So the next time they say something against him... He can say, well, look, I told you, you know, they're they're not taking this seriously. Yeah. Or, you know, they're sneaking around, they're doing devious things so that when he sneaks around and does devious things, he can be like, oh, well, they're just trying to point the finger at me to hide their own mm. misdoings. And he's so good at it. So good. He's incredibly innovative. Like, I mean... Your first, okay, first thing he tries to do is poison the water boils, then the sandstorm hits. So what does he do? He decides to just sabotage the water as opposed to trying to poison ruse again. When he's trying to signal for the bandit attack and he gets stopped, he then goes, well, they're not going to attack unless I signal them. So I now have another chance to cast suspicion on the guys because they've actually just admitted that they're trying to escape. And like this is the one thing as well I thought was kind of amazing is that he's so... I won't say charming because that's just... Uh, not the right word, but he's so disarming that in the final sequence he's in the Khan's chamber by himself with only the Grand Vizier there no bodyguards, no nothing and so I think he's used his position of being a peace envoy to like its utmost effect, because as you said just because he's a peace envoy doesn't mean he's peaceful but that's the way he's portrayed himself Yeah, I think there was one point where I think he missed I think he missed a, I think he missed a game there, right? Yeah. Which is when he's going to go after Ping Cho and Ian. Yeah. They had made a point that Marco wears the chain of the Khan. So he has this gold chain that sort of proves that he's with the Khan. I was waiting for the entire story. I was waiting for Tigana to be like, in order for me to do this thing for you, whatever that was going to be, and it turns out being going after Ian and Ping Cho, I need to act as you. And I was waiting for him to convince Marco to give him the medallion of the Khan or whatever it was. And then arrange for Marco to be set upon and not have that protection later. Yeah. I think he missed a trick there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because again, it would have just been, like, I suppose, the final touches to his devious master- masterful planness. And I, I, it's what I like about... Um, Tagana and there are certain other Doctor Who villains that come about is that he's as intellectually threatening as he is physically threatening. Yes. Like we we know that he's like a very skilled combatant, 
but he's also very crafty. Like, so he's not just dumb muscle, nor is he like scheming guy who can't defend himself and uses minions. And I just did rubbing my hands there in a sort of dick dastly fashion. <laughs> but there was one other thing that I thought was very interesting. It was that in the first episode, he overhears Marco saying, uh, whoever controls the TARDIS could be the most powerful person in the world. And Tagana's thing isn't to take it for himself, but it's to take it for his master. And I thought that was very interesting for a Mongol not to attempt to become a Khan himself by you know, getting access to this amazing thing and then just giving it to his lord. No, I think it's a, I think it's a really good testament to that character. I think it's an interesting thing to, for that character as well. See, I think he's playing the long game on that, though. That, that that's fair. Yeah, that could be fair. Give it over to his to his lord, ingratiate himself to him. Yeah. And then once his lord has done all the dirty work, he'll the lord take it for himself. I suppose my opinion is based on the fact that in the seven episodes, there's never any indication that that's the case. However. That could be something that happened, like, you know, like, could be happening in his head, just off camera, not voiced in any sort of weird Shakespearean soliloquy. I think I'm going to do this. <laughs> what was that you said? Nothing? <laughs> oh, yeah, but it's something I could see him doing, you know, given his character. The one question I have for you in regards to Tagana, right, because I, I flip-flopped on this a lot, is do you think he is genuinely a superstitious person? Or do you think he uses superstition to control others? I think he's savvy enough to use whatever superstition people have in the area to his advantage. Like, so initially when he says, like, you know, the people on the mountain, like, you know, when he meets the, guy, the travelers on the mountain, it's like, you know, they're evil spirits. Like, he he knows Europeans when he sees them. And I have a feeling that he was afraid that more Europeans around Marco might affect whatever plans he may have had. And then when we go into like the next thing of like the, the cave of the Hashashin, like he knows what's in there, like he knows the stories behind it. So it's like, ah, look, the place is haunted. Boo, boogie, boogie, boogie. So I, I don't think he's a superstitious person at all. Yeah, I didn't either, but I, I did at the beginning. My first note of him was like, oh, he's very superstitious, just because just the way he says it first. Do you know what I mean? But then later, you know, when we get to the cave of the Hashashin, you're like, okay, yeah, no, I, I get you. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to double check if you read that the same way I did. Like I get, I thought it is like unlike characters that we'll see in other historical things coming down the line. I think that his superstition is completely, uh, or his like belief in the other the other side or any sort of supernatural occurrences. I think it's complete bogus. I think it's he's just using it to manipulate people to his own advantage. So now that that's the characters, companions, villains of who they who they may or may not be discussed, <laughs> uh, we'll now go on to the overall scoring. So uh, Trish, how about you give us your score and reasons why? Cool. So before I get into my actual score, I should probably give a little bit of background on my history with this particular story because you've been particularly looking forward to discussing this story with me. Yes, I have for about ten years, I'd say. <laughs> about that. So. When I originally got the the beginning box set that has Unearthly Child, the Daleks, and Edge of Destruction, I started watching the 30-minute version of Marco Polo. And I very quickly got bored and turned it off. Yeah. So this is my first time in any form really watching this story properly. I had very little interest in watching any of the missing episodes that only had audio over stills. I just found it very off-putting. 
when I was 20 years old. And so I never got into it. That said, I am so glad I watched this story and that I gave it a chance. And I actually, and the version that we watched as well, I think is very important because this story was amazing. My scoring out of 5, I gave it 4.5 out of 5. Not a perfect score. And sadly, and this is no nothing against the Loose Cannon guys. The work they did was phenomenal. But particularly the sandstorm sequence, I, I couldn't, it, you couldn't make out anything. It was very, very hard to make out who was speaking. And then the other, you know, sort of negative in my view was Marco I I get the sense that he was meant to be the good guy but I personally didn't get that from him that didn't take away from my enjoyment of the episode I just think what they wanted to deliver I didn't get I think so for me it was a 4.5 out of 5 it's an amazical amazical that's not a word it was an amazing historical episode and the fact that this story is completely missing, it is such a loss. The sets and the costumes for this, you can see it in the stills. This would have been on par with the most amazing epic film. Yeah. You know, it looked so good. I completely agree. Uh, my score is also 4.5. And um, like I like a lot of the historical episodes uh, because like you know, I, I love history. And this is a really good example of why I do like the historical episodes in the sense of just the scale, even from the still images you get is amazing. It's fantastic. Like the set production looks amazing. The costumes, as you said, everything looks really good. And I'm so, so uh, sad for like Waris Hussein that his directions, especially for the combat sequences, they're missing. Because we saw how good he directed the fight in um, An Earthly Child. And there's multiple fight sequences in this. Uh, it would have been great to get him to, to visualize that. It was just like... And I really enjoyed the story. I wasn't bored watching any stage of this. Because like seven episodes, it can be a bit of a stretch. And you might get like one or two episodes where it's like, you know, it doesn't really feel like it needs to be there. I didn't mind the seven episodes because I thought it was really clever as to how Tagana recovered from each setback. And how it went towards furthering his uh, furthering his use of getting Marco suspicious against the guys. Uh, so that was really good. Yeah, I sort of saw that as a review. <laughs> as a reverse kind of... This is going to sound so weird. You mentioned Dick Dastardly at one point. Yeah. Earlier on. And it just reminds you of... Catch the pigeon. Yeah. The whole idea was... There's an elaborate plan and how does it go catastrophically wrong? Yep. And they can't catch the pigeon. And that's what I saw these seven episodes as. So the first episode was our introduction, you know, and getting to know everybody, which I thought was a nice, solid introduction. I think it worked really well. And then the middle five were, this is going to be Tagana's plan. It went horribly wrong. Tune in next week. He's going to have another dastardly plan. (laughs) But like, it could be so cheesy, but it worked so well. It was so good. And I suppose keeping with the... um cast a pigeon analogy he did have one or two mutleys and unfortunately they weren't as charming as mutley for for me that's where like um the the point five deduction comes from is i think that some of the characters were a bit too hokey or they were a bit too kind of over the top like kuju was 
Like, this guy is just so overtly sinister. Like, he should be wearing a T-shirt saying Bad Guy Incorporated or something. Because, <laughs> like, he just, like, you know, it's like the high-pitched voice. It's the, yes, a whole side of things. Plus the eye patch and the monkey. Like, he, like, <laughs> like he, he looked like that bad guy from Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it's like, look, I'm sorry. He's, it's clear this day he's bad. Ping Cho, leave him alone. The other thing, as I mentioned earlier on, was Kublai Khan, for me, had been built up and in my own mind and everything uh like he is like a really important historical figure and like he should have just become across as like obviously he's an old man at this stage but he could have still come across as quite powerful but i think they portrayed him a bit too comedically and the 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 way he was portrayed in his one-on-one time with the doctor we said was a, a really good strong character moment i would have preferred to have seen that portrayal consistent through his on-screen time and that's where it kind of just loses it a bit for me. That and the that and the fact that Ian's uh, backstory as to how he got his skill set is not touched upon at all. And, <laughs> and like, that, re- that really sticks in your craw, doesn't it? It, it? it really does because, like, it's. I mentioned last week, you know, like there's a couple, uh, or like not last week, uh, two weeks ago, like there's a couple of tropes that I don't particularly care for. Like one is that a society that everyone's role is the exact same, so why do they wear the exact same clothes? Like just. No, stop that. And this thing is um, people being thrown into scenarios where they're just, or sorry, snap my fingers, where they're like amazing at whatever it is that they do. It's like, you know, you get thrown into like medieval times. It's like, ah, I'm a perfectly capable knight that can fight off 17 people. Like it's, I would prefer like an explanation as to how you can do that. That That's just for me. Yeah. I do, I do wonder, that might be a good sort of um, thing to maybe if you could get your hands on the target novel or um, the audio version of the target novel. Yeah. If maybe they explain it that way. I don't have the target novel of this particular story because it got lost in the post. Because like, how old would we say Ian and Barbara are at this stage, just out of curiosity? I have them in their 30s. Because like, I'm just thinking that... I, like, Okay, like, say if, okay this is ni- it's 1963 when the show started because it started in real time, I think. Yeah. So if we put Ian at, say, 30... You've got okay. That would mean he's born in 1933, which means he's way too young to have served in World War Two. Potentially, he could have served in uh, the Korean conflict. Uh, but I'm just trying to think of whatever the, whatever scenario he could have been in to get the skill set that he did. Because I mentioned like you know sinister people you know, you can't trust like Christopher Lee. Like uh, Christopher Lee was potentially some sort of assassin during World War Two, <laughs> given the given like the background stories that we've heard from Lord of the Rings. So like. Yeah. I'd love to know what Ian did that he's able to fight with swords and ride horses and it's not a bother to him at all. So the riding horses thing may be easily explained. Maybe he just grew up in the country. Possibly, yeah. And he had a horse. Yeah. The sword riding thing, if he didn't have the public school education, is maybe a bit harder to explain. But again, if you imagine you know, him being in school in the 50s, maybe it was just an extracurricular he took. Possibly, yeah. Uh, but yeah, um, I think... Uh, I I understand why you I understand why you have those shut up I understand why you have those questions um, but I'm glad to see that they didn't result in you taking anything more than a half a point off the story yeah like those, um, I think I think the questions are just more so they would have probably taken a uh, 2.5 off it the the main thing is like just the the really weird portrayal of some of the characters in it yeah and that and that's a that's a fair call out you know I think those particular characters stand out 
because all of the other characters are done so well. Yeah. And you kind of get the sense that maybe from a directorial perspective or a writing perspective, that those characters were maybe a bit rushed. Mm. The whole idea of building up the Khan to be this great, powerful man, and then you see, you know, this older kind of caricature. It is a bit of a trope in some ways, you know. I think for the, the only thing that they left out was like when he went to sit down, he might have farted or something. I think that was the only kind of thing that they left out of the portrayal of him. Because again, like it's we we've seen before, like where older characters that like are kind of past their prime but still have like quite you know like a strong reputation they are they do come across that way and even like they could have transitioned that into the one-on-one time like i said but look overall this is an amazing story that i would highly recommend anyone that's looking to get the classic who to check out because one by watching it it's a testament to uh loose cannon productions who did an amazing work of trying to, to re- recreate it it gets more wars hussein's amazing the direction uh, out there it actually gets more of the uh, the uh, story-based actors like Darren Nisbet and Mark Eden and Zinnia Merton gets their filmography out there to people and I think as well the more people that watch it the, and the more voicing and talk there is about it the more that BBC might actually do an official DVD recreation of it with animation yeah that would be awesome and you know I really must reiterate again and you touched on it just from us as fans a huge huge thank you to loose cannon productions yes what they've done for the doctor who community the amount of work i mean they colorized all of the images yeah you got to see doctor who in color like a 1960s story in color and a story that lends itself so well to color yeah just a massive thank you to that entire team. And I strongly recommend that everyone listening to this head on over to Daily Motion and have a look for Loose Cannon Productions' Marco Polo. It is well, well worth a watch. That's it for this week, guys. Join us next week where we'll be discussing the Keys of Marinus, where the Doctor and Co. go on a series of mini-adventures in one big adventure. If you'd like to hear more about upcoming episodes or join in on the conversation... You can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravellingteamp at teampproductions.com. Talk to you next time. Bye.